0: Hi, this is Thames and Aster, author of the book, Force of Habit, Unleash Your Power by Developing Great Habits. You are listening to My Quest for the Best with Bill Ringel.
1: Listen up, small business founders, senior managers, and rising stars, Bill Ringel here, host of My Quest for the Best, where ambitious small business leaders discover strategies and tactics to unlock your growth potential. On each episode, I bring you the inside stories from published and accomplished guests who want to share their knowledge and experiences so you can be more successful in leading your people, managing your business, and navigating towards more growth and more impact in a changing and challenging landscape. Let's dive in. Joining me today is Tamsin Astor. Tamsin Astor, PhD, helps busy professionals organize themselves so they have time for what they want and need, as well as time for fun. Tamsin studied cognitive neuroscience in the PhD program at University of College London and also taught Ayurvedic yoga for more than 10 years. Tamsin lives and works in the Cleveland, Ohio area. She's here today to talk about her experiences and her book, Force of Habit, Unleash Your Power by Developing Great Habits. Welcome, Tamsin. Thank you
0: so much for having me, Val.
1: It's a pleasure. Tell me, when you were growing up, who's someone who influenced or inspired you?
0: My grandmother my maternal grandmother who was abandoned at boarding school at the age of 11 by her father when her mother died because she reminded him too much of her mother and by the age of 17 a teacher had helped her escape the school so that she wouldn't spend the rest of her life in the school and she managed to get a job so that she could support herself through nursing school and she became a nurse during world war ii in england And then met and married my grandfather and moved to Africa and spent 25 years living in Africa, where she was often the first white woman that anybody'd seen and suffered, you know, immense, immeasurable hardship, but was somebody who always looked for the best. And she was really my first guru, I suppose you could almost say, because she really taught the value of gratitude and counting your blessings and looking for the best. And that even when life felt like it was falling apart around you, you have the power over your mind to change your experience.
1: That is a powerful role model. Tell me, how did you have contact with her growing up? Was it on visits to Africa? Was she somehow available to you as you were growing up? What was the situation?
0: She moved back to England when my mother was a teenager because that was when apartheid became a huge issue in Africa. and She and my uncle Both were not very good at following the rules. And my grandfather suspected that there might be some issues if he didn't (laughs) pull them out of Africa. So they moved to the UK when my mother was a teenager. And my grandparents were a huge part of my life. From the age of five to 18, I spent one night a week at their house. Most holidays, they were part of the big celebrations. They were a huge, huge part of my life, you know, on a regular intimate basis. And she was somebody that I would tell everything to and told all my kind of first experiences to. Oh,
1: that's wonderful to have that extended family and the support and the stories that go along with it, especially when it's such a, a story of inspiration and you know positive role models. What's an example of how you used some of the lessons you learned from your grandmother? later on in your career to help you make a decision about what you wanted to study or what career path you might want to take? What's a decision that occurs to you that was kind of influenced by your grandmother?
0: She was somebody who was very intuitive, some might say psychic, you know, in terms of the way that she would pick up on what people were going through before they really knew it themselves. And growing up in a home where My father was a psychoanalyst, a Jungian analyst. My uncle was an OBGYN. And my grandmother was, you know, this woman who embraced essential oils and homeopathy and crystals and all of that. I grew up with a very deep east-west approach to the world, but I learned to really trust my gut. And I have a PhD, as you mentioned, and can very easily fall into overthinking. And when I find myself falling into overthinking, what was fantastic about my grandmother. Her advice and the way she engaged with me and everybody in her life was just to really push into what feels right.
1: To trust your thinking, do what feels right. Can you think of a moment in your 20s when you did something and that advice served you?
0: So one was when my ex-husband and I got research positions in the US and we moved out to America. And I think... You know, there was a part of me that, you know, I'd grown up in London and was very connected to everybody in London. But this idea of going and living somewhere else and exploring the world and living in a country which has a sort of a frontier energy, <laughs> which is what I felt when I moved to the US, really served me well. And I, you know, I went for two years and I've been here um, almost 18.
1: In your book, Force of Habit, you talk about the importance, and I think you even referenced some of it here the importance of mindset with habit formation and goal achievement. What else can you offer as an insight into what we need to be thinking about in terms of using our mindset in order to adopt, follow, and benefit from habits?
0: So mindset needs to be cultivated. And there are two things that I think are really key in terms of putting us on track or allowing us to be derailed by our mindset. One is the way we talk to ourselves, that negative self-talk. I talk about it as the shoulds. You know, we have a terrible habit, particularly women, of shoulding on ourselves. I should look this way. I should like this person. I should eat this food. I should want to be in this relationship. And then the second piece of mindset that's really key is navigating the boundaries around our relationships with others. So that's the being should on by others. And that can be your family, your religion, your culture, your community, your gender. You know, there's so many different things that can create the shoulds. And I think one of the things that is really key in creating a successful life on your own terms is learning to navigate those dual things, the internal and external, as it were, of your mindset.
1: And just to take it a step further, what this is doing is really cluttering up our workspace of our minds that really, you can't start to build something until you have a clear area to start to create, build, nurture, and develop. And you're kind of clearing the workspace, the way you clear weeds out of a garden before planting seeds, because planting seeds on a pile of weeds, even the best seeds aren't going to be able to germinate and take root. Is that accurate?
0: Absolutely. And I think, you know, one of the ways that it was described to me too. So, when my son was diagnosed with cancer and life got really stressful, I turned to lots of different resources for support. And one of them was Buddhism, because I liked that Buddhists were comfortable talking about death and that that made you comfortable with life. And one of my Buddhist mentors said to me, that holding on to anger and frustration about people and all of these expectations that can weigh you down is cluttering up your real estate. And if you imagine your mind as Manhattan real estate, right, super valuable, you know, really in demand, and you're filling it up with fears of the future, frustrations of the past, or anger at a particular relationship or the way something didn't work out, then it's going to be really hard, as you say, to do the work that you want to do.
1: So, let's go back to that time in 2008 that you read about in the book, where you had moved from London to Cleveland, started a family, left academia for yoga instruction, and were living the the phrase that I recall was the immigrant entrepreneurial lifestyle dream, right? (laughs) Yep. (laughs) There were a lot of stressful forces going on then with family and with health issues, as well as with career and relationships. What are just some of the key elements of that so that we have an idea of the context of that time for you that many people think you moved to a new country and, and you know, it's just an easy trajectory and things build one step at a time. But it really was a terrifically hard time for you. Share, fill in some of the details, please.
0: Sure. So I left academia after a few years because I started to realize that the politics of academia did not suit my personality. The the political fiefdoms of the departments, the need to get grant money and that you had to sort of constantly tell people why your work was of such value and fighting fighting and then the the getting published in peer-reviewed journals which you know once you start in a field you're recognized as a particular kind of academic so this concept of peer-reviewed has you know less weight when you actually dive into it and I also found the, the teaching piece, the fact that teaching is often not seen as a value in, a, in research institutions and that you're trying to buy your teaching out. Those things frustrated me and I left academia. And you know, when you start on your own, it's really tough because you're constructing your own financial well-being, you're constructing your own days, you're constructing a life for yourself without the framework of a regular job. And so I followed my heart, you know, as my grandmother would say, I followed my gut and I went into yoga and then into Ayurveda and then into coaching because I was struggling. And I was struggling because one of my children was diagnosed with cancer. Another one of my children was diagnosed with ADHD and we were dealing with, you know, school boards and plans and accommodations and therapists And then we were also navigating a relationship, my husband and I, that was really difficult. He was struggling to get tenure because he did interdisciplinary research, which everybody loves on the surface. But again, getting funding, getting published is really tough when you are not a straight, pure, one field academic. And so all of these things were going on in my life. And the pressure was really building. And then my cousin, who was like my brother, who I spent a lot of time with with my grandmother, was diagnosed with leukemia. And he and I were 37. And he went through a brutal battle with leukemia and eventually died when he and I were 37. And that period of my son going through cancer and my cousin dying, and me struggling with a lot of symptoms due to all of this was what really led me on the path to do the work that I now do.
1: And one of the things that I was struck by reading your story was that yoga was a really important part of it. And I think that there's an important lesson there. Do you recognize what yoga gave you at that point in your life that was different than all of the academic insights that you had about habit formation and and mental health and deciding your destiny?
0: So there's two parts. When we think about yoga in the West, we often just describe the asana the physical practice of yoga the third limb of the eight limbs of yoga and one of the things that most people get initially attracted to with yoga is that part and what's so fantastic about the physical practice of asana of moving through the poses is that when you are really doing it you can't be doing anything else And that is why it's often called meditation in motion because, you know, when you get on the running machine, you can be listening to a podcast, right? You can be watching CNN and it doesn't really push you away from what's going on and allow you to deeply integrate the layers of yourself in the experience you're having right then and there. So it was the physical practice of yoga that initially really drew me in. And then as I started studying yoga, and doing more trainings, I've got a number of different yoga trainings, is that I started to understand the philosophy of yoga. And a lot of it was about how you talk to yourself, your mental habits, having radical acceptance for who you are and how you show up, and how you engage with other people. The 10 frameworks, the initial, the first and second limb of yoga are kind of like the 10 commandments in terms of how you engage with yourself and how you engage with others are you pure of thought are you pure of mind how compassionate are you those sorts of things and the more I got into that the more I realized that there were interesting ways physically of incorporating my mind my physical body my mental body my energetic body into one place so I wasn't constantly thinking about what is my son going to die is my son going to die what's that going to mean you know and I could just be in the moment.
1: See, and this is really interesting because a lot of people will find this very curious, that in the midst of... Making hospital visits, of having to learn because there's a tremendous learning curve associated when a family member has a disease. And now you're talking with oncologists, and you've got to learn the vocabulary and what it means, and what the chances are of of different pursuing different courses of treatment, and so on. And the stress of that, and the stress of your husband looking for funding and, and finding a struggle there, and other another family member in the midst of that maelstrom, you were finding an oasis because you had yoga to turn to. Am I oversimplifying that, or was it actually the case that that gave you kind of a glimmer of light through this storm?
0: No, you're absolutely right. It did. It gave me peace. It gave me these little moments of peace, whether it was that I would unroll my mat, you know, at 4 a.m. in the morning before the rounds, they came in to do the rounds and take his blood pressure and take his blood and, you know, see how he was doing in the morning, or whether it was going into the studio and teaching a class, And holding space for others, because if you are really engaged yoga teacher, again, when you're in a space and you're holding energy and containing that energy for a room full of students, you can't be thinking about other things. And a combination of me doing my own practice and me holding space for others a couple of times a week gave me, it was almost like an inoculation, right? It gave me the the energy, the resourcefulness to show up as the wife. And the mother to my two children at that point that I wouldn't have been able to do if I had, you know, done something else or turned to turn to what, you know, often people turn to in situations like that, which are drugs and alcohol and overeating.
1: I think that's exactly the point. And I think that's really important for every business leader listening to realize that there are other choices that are healthy choices that can lead to that, actually not just lead to a space of understanding and choice for yourself and control when a situation feels out of control, but it actually gives you better agency in your life. Mm. Mm. When you take some paths like drinking or drugs or other risky behaviors, it only gives you a distraction or numbs you from the feeling where when you do something like in like you did, it really gives you a solution. And what has that led to? What's your mission now?
0: So my mission really is to reduce the wasted part of the 35,000 decisions that people make each day and replace them with effective habits.
1: Wow, so your neuroscience background helps inform the fact that we make tens of thousands of decisions, and it's true many of them are unconscious, opening the car door, closing the car door, turning on blinker signals, buttoning our shirt, tying our shoes. But many of them are conscious decisions that we don't have to make if we have good habits. Can you talk more about how habits influences and reduces that number and then what we might do as a result of reducing those that energy that goes into making those other decisions
0: so when we look at the cycle of a habit the habit has three components the cue the action and the reward the cue and the reward are activated and located in the frontal cortex which is the most evolved part of the brain which means that we have the most access to it the action the actual habit itself is buried in the mammalian brain lower down which makes it much harder for us to actually change it. And we know that from the addiction research, right? If you look at the literature, there are millions, tens of millions of Americans who are currently defined as being addicted to some substance or other. And, you know, the majority actually in the U.S. is alcoholism. I think it's about 74%. And one of the things that this work can do is, To become your own habit scientist. So I define myself as the chief habit scientist. So I help people make these connections. But what I want to empower my clients to do is to start looking at what is the cue and what is the reward? Because those are the bits you have access to. So for example, a cue is one of five things. It's a person, a place, a preceding event, an emotion, or a time, right? So it could be a particular person makes me want to have a glass of wine. A particular emotion makes me want to numb out on Instagram. The preceding event leads to, right? So those are the cues. And when we start looking at that and figuring out, huh, whenever I fill in the blank, I fill in the blank, right? So a classic one would be, I get home from work, I kick off my shoes, and I open a bottle of wine. And then, you know, that leads to other crappy decisions during the night, to. Order pizza rather than eat the roasted vegetables that you've made, right? To not go to the gym and to lie on the sofa. So, when we start looking at the cues, the things that are triggering the action cycle, we can manipulate those and be more effective. And when we can automate those so we're not having to think about it, we're creating more time and energy. We then want to look at the reward. What are we getting out of this? Are we getting satiated in some way? Are we getting some kind of reward that makes sense? So, Is it social contact? Is that we're full of food? Is it that we need to move our body? And we're not, we haven't quite figured out the exact manipulation around that. So when we take ownership and reflect on what we're doing and start to make these little micro changes, these micro habits, what we end up with is compound interest. People think making this one little change is not going to have that big effect, but we know from compound interest and finances that little changes have huge effects.
1: Timden, can you tell me about an example of working with another business leader who had habits that weren't serving him or her well, and you were able to help them adopt some of these ideas and reduce the stress of making decisions that may or may not have been leading them to the desired place that they wanted to go?
0: Absolutely. So I worked with a client called Lisa who was in transition from working from a large public organisation to working for an organisation where she had a consulting role which allowed her the freedom to work more from home. So she was an educational consultant. And what this allowed her to do was be in the office a couple of days a week and work from home a few days a week. And initially she thought, this is fabulous. I'm finally going to have more time with my kids, with my husband, to work out more, to cook more, to do all the things that she was not able to do with her travel schedule. And she came to me through a mutual friend and we worked together for a year. She's based here in Northeast Ohio. And what we really worked on was looking at how she created boundaries around her time and created connections between her habits. So one of the things that she was doing when we first started work together was a lot of numbing behavior when, you know, she should have been focusing on some particular part of her business or she'd got an email she didn't like, she would, you know, do online shopping or she would go into the kitchen to make a cup of coffee and, you know, eat all the cookies that she'd made for her daughter's school, (laughs) that kind of thing. And so we looked a lot at about, around creating connections between what she was doing on a day-to-day basis, a moment-to-moment basis, so that she wasn't having to think, I'm gonna do this then. And one of the first things we got her doing was getting up early and doing a 6 a.m. yoga class, which set the tone for the day.
1: A lot of research talks about the importance of priming your day or setting the tone. What other insights, what's a key takeaway that someone listening to Ought to think about and use to examine their own lives and behaviors and habits in order to make a small improvement and gain some of that compound interest you referenced?
0: So one thing that I am a huge fan of is tracking how you spend your time. And one of the things that I do with my clients when I take them on is what I call a daily habit audit, where we look at your time for a week and I send my clients a a google spreadsheet and they fill it in and if they're an entrepreneur they'll chunk it according to the different entrepreneurial activities and one of the things that's really interesting is just taking that time to look at how you are spending your days gives you real insight into where you are being ineffective and people often we live in a time where we I say we worship the altar of busy, right? You get on the phone with somebody, you chat, I'm so busy, I'm so busy, I'm so busy, like this is a good thing, <laughs> you know? And I do not have time for that, I do not have time, oh, I couldn't possibly squeeze that in. And if you take the time to look at how you actually spend your days, you start to realize that there are these big chunks of the day when you are doing mindless activity or being unproductive or wasting time making decisions, right? So one of the things that can be hugely effective is to do that. And then as you say, like front load the day with the things that you know, are going to set you up. So whether it's the activities that ground and send to you exercise, meditation, journaling, reading books that are uh, professional development or spiritual in nature, whether it's prepping your food so that you're not walking into the kitchen with tired kids who you've still got to get to activities at the end of the day and you've just come off you know 15 calls and you're thinking what in the hell am I going to cook for dinner if you've planned out your meal for the week right you're going to go in and go oh it's Wednesday look at the board Wednesday we're cooking teriyaki chicken and green vetch. pull it out the fridge and off you go
1: so Tamsin are you ready for the my quest for the best lightning round
0: absolutely bring it on bell
1: All right. So what's one of the biggest obstacles people have in making a new habit stick?
0: Not being consistent. And the biggest issue around that is that somebody says, I'm going to commit to exercising every day. And then you decide you're going to take a 90-minute yoga class every day and you don't get to it. So instead of going, oh, I'm going to replace it with a walk around the block or running up and down my stairs or a 20-minute hit video from YouTube – you get rid of it. So consistency, consistency, consistency. It takes about 30 days minimum for a habit to form and when you don't fit it in because you've created a habit that's too big or too difficult within the constraints of your life giving up on it altogether.
1: What's the funniest example of how our environment shapes our lives that you've encountered?
0: Hmm, that's a great question. So one of the things the habits that I often give people who are trying to exercise first in the thing in the morning is to sandwich that's one of the best neurological tips for creating a new habit is to sandwich a new habit between two habits that you constantly already do in a consecutive manner so when i'll say to people what's the first thing you do when you get up people will usually say i go to the bathroom and so i say to them okay somewhere between your bedroom and your toilet put your running shoes your workout pants your sports bra your whatever it is right there so you have to step over it to go to the restroom.
1: <laughs> or step into it.
0: <laughs> exactly. And the number of people that are like, what if I pee on my running shoes? And I'm like, that's the point. You put them on so you don't pee on them.
1: <laughs> there you go. What was it? The, the cue, the action, the reward. There's the, <laughs> there's the disincentive.
0: <laughs> exactly. Exactly.
1: <laughs> and then you mentioned earlier that people should all over themselves. <laughs> What's the difference between a, an obligation or a should and a should and a habit.
0: So a should is something I think that it comes from this research that was done in the 80s on the ideal self, the ought self and the real self that's where I draw it from, so the real self is who you are, right so I am a white woman living in the Midwest, I grew up in that, so those are my real defining characteristics the ought self is the, is the should piece, is the I ought to be married, I ought to make this much money, I ought to go to church I ought to eat this kind of food which is not necessarily what I want, right, the ideal ideal is who am I? What's my legacy? What's my bigger vision? What's my bigger mission in life? And when you tap into your ideal self, and one of the best ways you can do that is to think about writing your obituary, right? What do you want to be remembered for? How do you want to change the world? When you break down the habits within that, those are the habits you want to be doing. And of course, you know, there's the the eat well and exercise and sleep well, but I don't really think of those as shoulds because to me, they are necessary for being able to do the work in life.
1: It's true. As you think more and more about your life having a mission and a purpose, those things that used to be so insurmountable and require so much effort to do, such as eating well and exercising regularly, it just becomes in service of your larger mission. How could you possibly influence 100,000 people a year if you don't have the energy from eating well and sleeping as much as you need to and getting the exercise you need to by working out? It's exactly. Not, yeah.
0: Exactly. And that, and you know when when it becomes overwhelming, one of my mentors used to say, reduce it to the ridiculous. You know, can you meditate for one minute a day? You know, and then it becomes two minutes, and then it becomes five minutes, and then it becomes ten minutes. But make it something that you can do and stick to when you start, first start.
1: Tamsin, let's back up for a moment. Why is it important for each of us to define what important ideas such as health, success, and freedom mean in personal terms? as part of developing our habits. You talked about that in contrasting it with the oughts versus real self and and the ideal self. Can you give us a little bit more about how to do that and to actually go through and, and define these terms for ourselves in real terms or ideal terms?
0: So one of the things that I think is really key is that people will get into a cycle of doing a good habit because they know it serves them. But then they'll get to a point of going, why am I getting up at five in the morning to go to the gym? And if they don't have a clear, bigger vision in life, a bigger mission, a bigger direction, then that's not going to keep them on track. And the way I describe it is the telescope and the microscope, right? Your microscope is what are you doing on a daily basis? The telescope is where are you trying to get to? And when you get stuck in one or the other, it's hard to keep on track. And one of the best ways of keeping on track in the way that I do it with my clients is with this approach of mindset. So creating a bigger vision and mission for your life allows you then to break down the daily habits and go, oh, well, you know, I want to be somebody that hikes the Great Wall of China or hikes up Machu Picchu with my youngest son when he graduates high school on the daily habits am i lying on the sofa eating donuts drinking a bottle of wine watching netflix or am i getting up going to the gym eating my green having my green smoothie eating a you know a healthy diet and you know reading books that inspire me right so toggling back and forth is really key and using a big framework to get there is key and i'm a big fan of the yogic one of the purushatas, which breaks down into, it means your soul's aim. And they are dharma, which is your mission. What is your mission in life? What are you here to do, right? And my mission is to reduce the wasted part of the 35,000 decisions that people make each day and replace them with effective habits. So that's a clear mission. Then I want to look at ARTA, which is my financial well-being. What does financial well-being mean to me, Tamsin specifically? And that's something that only I can answer by looking at my life. Is that that I want to be able to fly business class or first class or am I happy in coach? Does being financially well, being well mean that I've paid off all my debts, that I own a Ferrari or that I own a Toyota, right? What does it mean for me? Getting clarity on that and using that to break down my daily habits and keep me on track. The third one is pleasure. We often use pleasure as a reward rather than a baseline for how we engage in our life every day. And again, pleasure is hugely personal. Is pleasure... Having having a rescue pup that you get to walk every day. Is pleasure being in a long-term committed relationship? Is pleasure having organic food? Is pleasure having a cleaner who comes in once a week and cleans your house? What does pleasure mean to me? Is it being able to dance the tango? Is it being able to go on vacation twice a year? Again, very personal, really connected to that ideal self. And then the fourth and final one is freedom, spiritual liberation, freedom. And what does that mean for you? Moksha. And... For me, I'm driven by time freedom. That's my biggest freedom, is that I want the free time to be able to spend with my children when I have them. I'm divorced, and when I have them, I want to be able to be with them. My family's in Europe. I want to be able to go and spend a few weeks, a couple of times a year with my family and still have a successful business. So I'm driven by freedom of time.
1: Tamsin, I want to thank you so much for joining me on my quest for the best today. You've introduced so many great ideas, such as the staggering fact that we make 35,000 decisions a day and that habits help us simplify that so that by having the right habits in place, ones that actually serve us, it simplifies it in a way that benefits us rather than detracts from our progress. Thanks again for sharing the idea that mindset needs to be calibrated. And we have two ways of doing that. One is how we talk to ourselves. The language we use, the tones we use, the reliable phrases that help us become more of our best selves more often. And secondly, navigating the boundaries of our relationships with others, whether they be family, colleagues at the workplace, neighbors, all of that makes a difference. Thanks for telling us your story about yoga and how you go deeper into it, and how that was a real source of comfort and centering and gave you habitual strength at a time when it was really needed in your life. Thanks for introducing the notion that we should all become our own best habit scientists, where we're constantly running experiments, seeing how they work, and then adopting the ones that do and discarding those that don't work out. It's important for everyone listening to realize that good habits lead to compound interest. And that's so important, especially as you illustrate that through Lisa, who undertook a daily habit audit because she was worshiping at the altar of busy. I love that phrase. And then also with a bigger purpose in life, being able to see our lives through both a telescope and a microscope in order to adjust our mindset and to fine tune our habits. For these reasons and so many more, Tamsin, thank you once again for joining us on My Quest for the Best. Thank
0: you. It's been a pleasure.
1: (laughs) Before we say goodbye, can you tell us where we can find out more about you and your work?
0: Absolutely. You can find my website, which is my name, TamsinAsta.com, T-A-M for mother, S I N for Nancy, A-S for Sally, T-O-R. And on there, you can sign up for a really interesting piece on the shoulds and what the shoulds mean to you and how to rethink the shoulds so you don't should on yourself or other people.
1: That's fabulous. We're going to link to that in the show notes, as well as all the other resources we mentioned during our talk today. Thank you again so much for joining me on My Quest for the Best.
0: Absolutely my pleasure, Bill. It's been fantastic.
1: Hi, this is Bill, and I hope you've enjoyed this podcast interview on My Quest for the Best. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or your favorite app, so you never miss an episode full of stories, tips, and insights for the ambitious small business leader. Now I have a quick request for you. Please go to Apple Podcasts and iTunes and give us a rating and review. My team and I really appreciate the feedback, and we read every comment to find out what you enjoy and what you want as we develop new content, course materials, and a few surprises that we have in store for you. When you rate and review My Quest for the Best, you help other small business leaders find us, subscribe to the podcast, and join the community. You can get the Insider's e-newsletter for small business leaders by going to myquestforthebest.com.